Welcome to the cul-de-sac, an amalgamation of ideas and synaptic connections from our brains to yours. On this episode, I am joined by new media artist and designer Matt Kenyon. His work has been exhibited nationally and internationally in venues such as the Museum of Modern Art in New York, MOCAD Detroit, the Science Gallery in Dublin, Ireland, the Centra de Cultura Contemporanea de Barcelona in Barcelona, Spain, and the International Print Center. He is the co-founder of Swamp, studies of work atmospheres and mass production. Swamp focuses on critical themes addressing the effects of global corporate operations, mass media and communication, military industrial complexes, and general meditations on the liminal area between life and artificial life. Swamp has been making work in this vein since 1999, using a wide range of media, including custom software, electronics, mechanical devices, and oftentimes working with living organisms. What excites me about Matt's work is how he uses illusions and exciting manifestations of the physical world to illuminate and critique abstract concepts such as our financial system, in particular the 2008 financial collapse and subsequent foreclosure crisis, and also hidden things, or purposefully hidden things, like the body count caused by our war in Iraq. Viewing his work elicits a complex bouquet of emotions and feelings for me, often humor mixed with shame, provoking a fire in the belly and inspiring curiosity around these complex and in my view, purposefully hidden subjects. Matt lives and works in Buffalo, New York, where he is an associate professor in the Department of Art at the University of Buffalo and part of Platform, University of Buffalo's socially engaged design studio. His projects are beautifully presented at swamp.nu on the World Wide Web, and I would highly recommend visiting the site as you listen to see with your own eyes what it is we are discussing. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Matt. What's going on, Matt Kenyon? How are you? Doing well. Yeah. Nice. And you're situated currently in Buffalo? Yeah. Uh, home of the Buffalo Wing? Yeah. Among I'm, other uh, things. On the west side of Buffalo, um, couple blocks from uh, uh, the original site of um, uh, uh, Sidney Sherman and Robert Longo's gallery, uh, the original site of Hallwall's gallery, uh, oh, cool. picture generation, uh, really neat neighborhood in the west side of Buffalo. How did, do, do you know how Sidney Sherman and Robert Longo ended up there? Like what, what, was they, they were just uh, looking for a place? I don't know. They were uh, part of a a Buffalo art scene, uh, you know, um, I know Cindy Sherman was a student at uh, Buffalo State University. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of that uh, picture generation sort of came out of, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was just an organic thing. But of course that predates me quite a bit, but uh, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we're, we're settled a nice location in the west side of Buffalo and I'm, working as the graduate director at the University of Buffalo, where uh, I oversee the uh, MFA, the MA, and the PhD programs. Word. Cool. And you've got, uh, are you still working on swamp projects too, through the midst of all, all of that mm -hmm. as well? So yeah, all, all of my work, uh, I've been publishing uh, under the, the umbrella of swamp uh, since 1999. And, uh, um, and oddly enough, uh, because of, um, you know, everybody's shows and everything, all of our lives sort of got put on hold or shows got canceled because of the quarantine. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been working in my home studio in the basement and in the garage making work uh, that relates to events during the, during the pandemic uh, related to housing. So Word. that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and SWAMP, just the acronym of SWAMP is Studies of Work, Atmosphere, and Mass Production. And as you said, you've been in this area under this umbrella since 1999. 
which I mean, I just have to imagine the work atmosphere and mass production has gone, undergone like enormous change, even in that span of time. Like, I think when I first came into your work, I mean, I was a student of yours early in like 2000, I don't know, in early 2012, somewhere around there was when I met you. And at the time, I feel like the in the zeitgeist, we were all talking about maker culture. And like, like that was like, oh, maybe in five, maybe in ten years we'll have three D printed houses, which are kind of arriving now, and and stuff like that. And I wanted to dive into this, just this ethos of maker culture and how maybe it has changed over time. As like, uh, I know your background too is in punk, or like you have like a background in like punk rock. And I'm trying to string this all together because I think that there's like this connection of like, you know, a a uh, a um a subculture of work or DIY ethos will emerge and it'll it'll flourish and individuals will create work create like meaningful things but then it's eventually co-opted into um, you know a greater corporate culture and so thinking about those things how has uh, swamp changed or how, how is like how is your thinking around these sort of DIY places evolved yeah um. Yeah, it was it was wonderful to have you as a student uh, back back in the day. I can't remember; it seems so long ago, like a lifetime. Yeah. Um, and then to imagine uh, the origins of uh, my studio practice is even longer uh, ago. But um, well, I studied painting and printmaking originally, and I grew up in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and uh, lived for a time uh, uh, in Kansas, the middle of nowhere, Kansas. And then um, my, uh, my mom actually kicked me out of the house. And so I moved back down to Louisiana with no real plan and ended up going to a, a small community university uh, called uh, Southeastern Louisiana University down in Louisiana. And that's where I met my former collaborator, Doug Easterly, who's like one of my best friends to this day. And at the time, uh, you know, Hammond, Louisiana, it's this strange little town at kind of an intersection of highways um, over a long, uh, near a long causeway that connects to New Orleans, which is one of the cultural centers, of course, right? And at the time when I was a painter, uh, this thing came to town, this gigantic big box store that we know as Walmart, a super center, one of the first 24 hour you know, Uber convenience stores that had everything from groceries to, you know, uh, uh, you know, lawn equipment and furniture and things like that. You get your eyeglasses made and your teeth cleaned, the whole thing under one and roof. And your gun. Yeah, yeah your, your gun. gun. Yeah, yeah, everything you need. And uh, so Doug and I, you know, were sort of observing this thing. This is kind of like an alien spacecraft that landed on the edge of town and, um, and so we went there and one of the first, the first Swamp performance was called Walmartathon. And we went in there and everything we bought, everything that we wore, uh, everything that we interacted with became part of the piece. And we lived there for 24 hours. We were sort of, we went through the checkout line initially and sort of were born again uh, into this consumer paradise. And then, you know, we split up and just had to occupy ourselves for you know 24 hours right um mm -hmm. shopping or pretending to shop i guess would be more like it it was a little bit like diane fossey and the gorillas in the mist except instead <laughs> of like bending a piece of bamboo and pretending to chew it we were comparing like the ingredients of dandruff shampoos or something like that <laughs> and when it came time this was all new to me i didn't have a context i mean uh, you know, performance art. Uh, you know, I was a painter and um, I was also at the same time doing these paintings in Walmart. I would assemble kind of like a duck blind out of cases of beer or Coke and hide in the shelves and paint people as they or take photos and paint people and draw them. And so this was just kind of, uh, you know, I didn't have a name, you know, I didn't know, have any context really for performance art. I came from a very regional, you know, art scene. And then when it came time to, uh, to, to try to show this project, uh, to exhibit it um, in like maybe one of the first, you know, exhibitions I ever participated in, uh, we decided to not put our names on the work, but instead come up with this acronym, 
And part of it was inspired by the kind of swamp that we were living. And then part of it was just the kind of riff on the, you know, multi, multifaceted effects of having this gigantic corporation build this home center or this, you know, all, you know, Uber uh, shopping uh, big box right on the edge of town. And all of the outcomes uh, that came out of that, you know, they, they're almost trite uh, to this day, but they were new at the time, right? This idea that it was going to put all of the ma and pa shops out of business. Mm-hmm. It would function like a kind of town square. You know, you would see couples, young couples, sort of performing the act of almost like dating in the store, you know, like one, I remember this one young man, like pointing to a box of cereal saying, this is the cereal we get. And then the girl like pointing to like some granola and saying like, this is what we, and they, you know, kind of measuring each other's uh, uh, consumer trends and things like this. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And so that's where Swamp came. And then, you know, the, we started with like what we knew and what was having an impact, like drive-through restaurants, um, big box retail, and uh, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then gradually it moved into the larger, largest corporation, which you know, like the U- United States military. Right. Yeah. And so, and your project. Um, I mean, moving just into that project. Well, there's a lot that you said there. I'm trying to think. Maybe there's a point that we should cover first this uh yeah um i think we could talk about that well yeah we'll just talk about the the notepad project too which i think was maybe where moving in is that when is that the first project and the notepad project was one where you uh created this yellow page or you know yellow page pad and it's uh they've they're it's where the lines are and the pad it's a it's a micro print of names, dates, and locations of civilians uh, who died in the uh, conflict with Iraq, the Iraq War. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just looking at the totals on that IBC site or Iraqi body count mm-hmm. site. I mean, they're still going up. There's just mm-hmm. 56 deaths last month, and the total they say is 288,000 deaths of non. Or no, no, 200, 208,000 is the high number of non-combatant, just civilian deaths from that conflict, which is has yet to end too, as well, right? And um, uh, so I guess you you created the notepad, but you also created the IED, the empath or the the empath EEE. I'm sorry, the, no, no, I, I, yeah, IED, yeah. the improvised empathetic device. Divide. Yeah, which saw you being stabbed every time. Um, a U.S. soldier died, mm-hmm. and you wore that too. So it was those those two projects were the beginning. Were they that was the beginning of your work on the industrial military com- com- uh, yeah. complex? Yeah, I grew well. I should say I grew up uh, in a military family. Like both my mm-hmm. father and my stepfather were veterans. Um, a very a, you couldn't have a more different. Um, pair of veterans uh, than my my father who's still alive uh and my stepfather who's uh has been dead for several years but um mm-hmm. but they were both military uh you know and so i grew up sort of surrounded by the kind of legacy of the my, my family you know uh, the legacy of the american war in vietnam mm-hmm. and then um yeah so f- like flash forward i was teaching in western new york not far from where i am now I was teaching mm-hmm. at the university uh, SUNY, SUNY Buffalo, or I mean um, SUNY Fredonia rather, and um, and at the time, you know, we would have these, you know, weekly casualty reports that would be listed out, you know, on the news and and media. And mm-hmm. I remember I was in a car driving to Syracuse to go see my collaborator, and you know, NPR or whatever had, you know, the radio had just you know, made a mention of how many people had died. And and I remember simultaneously, like, receiving that information, you know, being critical, right, of course, of our government and this illegal military adventure that they had, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> signed us all up for and spent all of our treasure on. But then also critical of the media, because I was thinking, like, this is just not doing it. You know, it just really just giving this 
casualty report over the radio like it was, you know, the weather or the, you know, mm -hmm. pollen count or something. And then that's when I thought of the Dead Kennedys. Like in my relationship to punk was only as a as a fan and consumer. I, uh, but I remember Jello Biafra, the frontman of the Dead Kennedys, saying, "Don't hate the media. Yeah, or become the media." Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, like, well, if this news, if I feel like this news isn't as effective as it should be about the men and women dying, you know. Uh, overseas for a war that you know is illegal and totally fucked up then what can I do how can I transmute that signal into something that would affect me and I was mm -hmm. just you know driving in that kind of zoned out you know uh, sweet spot when you're you know uh, driving on the highway and just thinking like what would it take you know for this news to make an impact and mm -hmm. so I built that I you know, in the IEDs, the improvised explosive devices were the one of the things that was killing so many civilians and soldiers overseas. And so mm -hmm. there's a kind of genius to the design of those, right? Because it uses this readily made or this kind of pager or phone. I mean, genius in its, you know, uh, uh, dark, uh, you know, right. uh, you know, it's effective effectiveness. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just, you know, re redesigned it so they used a pager to um, to read out the names on the um, on the device and then stab me once for each uh, soldier, and uh, and then in doing the research for that, like you said, I became aware of the disproportionate number of uh, of civilians and non-combatants who were dying, and so I felt like the where the IED armband made sense and participated in this like history of like black armbands in American protest of, of wars, you know, which we've had, you know, in an uninterrupted series since, uh, you know, for my entire life, at least, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, yeah. And, and then the, the microprint seemed like a, a good metaphor for the, the subtext or the, you know, marginalization of the civilians. Yeah. Not to mention, I mean, with the micro text in particular, that, subverting of the way that our government archives uh mm -hmm. things like I, I remember from your stamps or your ted talk you talk about you give everyone a piece of paper to to with microprinted names to mail a letter to the um you know their representative mm -hmm. and all these letters are then archived and i mean i i i know in that performance you also got to talk to who is the guy who wrote the torture mem memo? Oh, Alberto Gonzalez. Yeah. Yeah. You got to present him with this notepad and, or, yeah. or maybe you asked, or I, that's maybe separate from what I was trying to get to about, I think you, Donald Rumsfeld or something says we don't keep mm -hmm. body counts of the other yeah. side. Um, you know, which is shocking. Mm -hmm. It's like, we create this devastation and although we're obsessed with archiving and documenting, we're not documenting things. But he lied. He, he lied he as did. well. Because oh, yeah. years later, as a result of WikiLeaks, you had the uh, American, what was it? The American war logs or- uh, Okay, so they were keeping uh, track. Yeah, it was a, I mean, uh, it became, I mean, not wasn't, it was super classified, but it mm -hmm. got leaked in WikiLeaks and, and, and showed that we were, you know, uh, keeping track of, um, of individuals uh, mm -hmm. who were killed. And, um, and so that, so, so we're now in like the fourth edition of the notepad. And so I've been trying to update it as best I can. Uh, as you say, the, you know, the accumulation of, of, of death uh, in Iraq is uh, continuing to this day. And mm -hmm. uh, um, yeah. yeah, I think the thing that strikes me about all these projects that you're doing in the early 2010 area and even earlier, it's like, you were on top of all these issues that have kind of evolved in after, over time. Like we talk about the WikiLeaks thing coming out, which gives more context to the work you're doing. Um, I mean, you start, I don't know when you started thinking about oil and fossil fuels and stuff, but like we're now seeing, you know, this major push for the Green New Deal, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I always wonder about like what the effectiveness of, of art is. And I love that, I love that quote that you pulled out about from Jello Biafra, like, don't hate the media, be the media. And it makes me think, you know, as more people and within your art practice, you're always trying to take, 
you know, you're taking something that we're all experiencing as a society and then really focusing on how you can make that like a visceral part of your own life. And it strikes yeah. me as something that just needs to happen throughout all of our culture. People need to take a, like a really individual stance on, um, all these complex things that we're dealing with, like, and, and have like, you know, international policy or like talks around currency should be occurring on this individual level. Like we have with techno technology gives us so much power at our fingertips if we would only take it, you know, to like, I, the punk rock, uh, like, so the, the quote of course, uh, was inspirational, but also the, the kind of ethos of punk rock in that, <clears throat> you know, when you're in the garage and you have one microphone, you know, you have to really scream, you know, your, your vocals are competing to, to, uh, with, with your instruments or your friends who are playing in your band. Right. And, um, so you, ha you have to change your tactic. You'd have to change your approach, right? And, uh, and, and that DIY, you know, for me, the punk, uh, you know, punk rock was the orig original, my original experience with DIY in that, like it was before it was turned into this like Home Depot catchphrase, uh, you know, which I think is bullshit, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, you know, do it yourself. You can, we can help or whatever, you know? Um, yeah. We'll, we'll sell you the stuff to do it yeah. yourself. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, you know, I mean, you have this in the kind of kits, you know, uh, kit culture and maker spaces mm -hmm. and stuff, uh, which ha has its place. But, um, but I grew up in Louisiana, which was major, you know, is uh, Louisiana is one of the major fossil fuel, uh, uh, states in the in, in the nation and also uh, a site of great refineries and so mm -hmm. the landscape i grew up in you know i remember i thought everyone had this sort of horizon filled with you know methane burning flares uh you know uh i thought that was everywhere but but no it's funny that you say that too because i grew up i grew up in allen park just right next to the marathon refinery which i dro drove past all the time and right. yeah my mother-in-law still lives right behind it it's like the the methane burn-offs <laughs> illuminate the house yeah <laughs> i thought everyone grew up in that too yeah. it's insane and you know uh and the spectacle of it is you know i mean it's something that's stuck in my mind as a kid when you see a flare you know a flame that's you know three stories high in the sky you know i mean it's amazing Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, but unlike Alaska, for instance, that uh, shares the revenue uh, from the oil and gas with all of the citizens of the state, Louisiana um, took an entirely different approach. Um, they, Louisiana is one of the states that has the largest uh, um, um, corporate uh, welfare. Um, mm -hmm. They take tons of money from the state coffers and give it to the industry, um, oil and gas industry, especially, um, in a way, I mean, it's a massive amount of, of public theft. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's this, you know, this idea that if we don't do it, that they will leave. Well, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a community that would let you build, you know, 15 miles of refinery in this day and age. And plus, yeah. they have those refineries have been there since the 50s, so they're not moving anywhere, and they owe a responsibility to the, you know, both to the health and safety and the finances of, of the state, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where it came, and uh, kind of growing up in that landscape, and my, you know, like all of us, like you mentioned, you know, your family, uh, you know, my dad was a, a paper salesman for close to 40 years down in Louisiana. And my stepmom uh, was a crisis counselor and a um, uh, and worked at the, the last one of the last uh, leper colonies in the United States. So she's a feminist and an activist, and uh, and so that's the kind of background I grew up with, with my um, my parents in Louisiana, and um, and you I also yeah what? she worked with she worked with a leper colony, people who yeah. had leprosy. Yeah, we're not. Oh. Technically, we're not supposed to call them lepers. Uh, we we should uh, it's Hansen's disease, but um, okay, got it. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, she worked at Carville, uh, Louisiana, um, one of the last um, 
centers of its kind uh, right on the bank of the Mississippi. Uh, and that, that's a fascinating history and, and I have like total respect and admiration for the work that my parents have done and they've mm-hmm. been activists in their communities as well, pushing uh, to prevent the same kind of um, um, splitting of cities uh, uh, that happened, for instance, up in Detroit. Uh, they're trying similar maneuvers down in Louisiana. Um, and uh, yeah, so so that that's kind of the background that I came from. Um, and uh, uh, and so with oil and gas, uh, you know, I worked, I, I should also mention, I worked um, as an air balancer in industrial um, heating and cooling on the third largest movable oil rig in the world at the time. Oh, wow. uh, uh, that was um, harbored uh, a station sort of off the coast of uh, Texas. And so, um, so I saw kind of this infrastructure, both for oil and gas and um, industrial uh, prisons uh, while I worked that job uh, in between uh, school. Oh, wow. Okay. That was, yeah. So that was like, that was like a technical job. Did you have, did you go to school for art at the time or did you get your degree in like a technical field before coming to art? No, no, I got, I got a, a BA in art. Uh, and then, uh, and then I worked, um, like a family member got me this job, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. working in air balancing, which I was like a grunt. I just would climb these really tall ladders and read the amount of cubic feet of air coming out of vents. And then we would work, industrial control systems yeah to control man there's a lot of good a lot of good jobs for artists out there i don't know why people say there are no good jobs for artists (laughs) you could be an air air balancer (laughs) i thought it it does sound a little bit like a kind of conceptual art practice right like bruce and balancing air uh in the studio or something by i get like a tom Sachs vibe yeah yeah um yeah that's cool um so kind of like a I, I, I know your work too deals a lot with currency and the idea around currency um, and what currency even is which made me go into a rabbit hole of thinking about um, like this big change that occurred like when we basically switched in the 1970s from from a gold standard truly to like fiat currency and as uh, I mean it's all it's always so complex to try to talk about fiat currency for me i'm wondering do you have a good <laughs> idea of, of of currency and like how like where we are right now in terms of value around these things yeah um i can i can try i can kind of tell you the parts of it that excite me and kind of got yeah my- totally because yeah. i guess where i'm going with this too is like now i'm thinking a lot about the next generation of currency with like bitcoin and and um and where I see things kind of going. I don't know if you know about these new, these things too called NFTs. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I'm kind of like moving, I'm like, wow, we're really just going to be trading digital art as currency. I'm just trading that with Amazon soon is like where I see this going. Yeah. I can, I can take us through that a little bit. Um, so, uh, what year was it? Gosh. Um, well, 1971. No, no. So back in the day, uh, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. the Knights of Malta were under siege, oh, wow. yeah. and okay. uh, and the supply of the precious or semi-precious uh, mineral that would uh, metals that would go into their coinage, uh, you know, had essentially been cut off. And mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. what they did is they minted their coins uh, out of a, you know, a lesser material. Um, and they printed on the coin, it said, um, uh, what was it? It was like, not, it was, it was in Latin, but it was something like, um, not in material, but in trust, something. Mm-hmm. Like and of course, this is back in the day when you, you could think like the coin had a value because of the, the precious or semi-precious metals that were in the coin. You think of someone biting the gold coin as a cliche kind of thing. Well, they bit it because they they could tell how soft it was, and that was an indication of how much gold or silver or something was in it. Mm-hmm. But the Knights of Malta printed this coin, minted this coin that said, you know, basically, we're good for it. Like, the the value of the coin is in a kind of social trust. Mm-hmm. So that's the first instance I can find where that started where that happened Mm -hmm. and 
um, in another example that you were talking about, like, you know, by many accounts, we're at this kind of moment, this threshold moment where uh, currency and trust and these systems are being reevaluated, um, you know, at mass in scale, <laughs> at scale, right? right? Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it reminds me a little bit of a time back in, uh, back in the British Empire, prior to the invention and the adoption of double entry book accounting, like what we use today, the, the entire record keeping system of the empire used something called tally sticks to keep records. And these were essentially, they kind of looked like paint sticks from Home Depot or something, but they were strips of wood that had notches, very particular notches carved in them. Mm-hmm. And if you were um, sending someone with this, uh, you know, uh, to, to deliver, you know, the accounting of your taxation or something like that, they would also split them down the middle and they would cleave kind of irregularly. And you would have essentially the physical equivalent of a public private key pairing, which I thought was pretty interesting. Oh, yeah. But this, of course, you know, was a brilliant uh, system for, you know, a a population of folks who maybe, you know, were semi-literate and, you know, it was a physical way to keep track of, of, uh, of incomes and things coming in, things going out and whatever for tax purposes. So then they decided, well, let's move it all over to this double entry book. Accounting has all kinds of good reasons for that, right? For running the empire. And, you know, you could think of the burden of all this physical, all these physical objects, right? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's what they did. They, they transcribed all of the tally sticks into ledgers. And then they, according to what I read, um, uh, they had the, uh, uh, the help uh, burn them in the uh, fireplace or the uh, furnace of the House of Lords and House of Commons. And if you know the Turner painting, uh, the burning of the House of Commons and House of Lords, Well, that painting was made uh, after supposedly uh, the workers were overzealous in loading the furnace and it overheated the um, stovepipes and burnt down the entire center of government, taking with it not just the tally sticks and the ledgers, but the original kilogram that, you know, the physical object by which the kilogram was was measured. uh, Wow. All of our, like the, yeah, wow, all of the references are just deleted yeah well i think you know i don't know how they you know uh, i don't know the details of how they were able to uh obviously they were able to recover but um but i'm interested in that like you said like where this sort of this thing has materiality and then becomes a sort of essentialized data uh, you know block of data Mm -hmm. so that's where this was all research i did for a series of projects called giant pool of money um the centerpiece of which is a 15 foot tall champagne glass pyramid that um, viewers experience in a variety of different ways. There's been a couple of different versions. Uh, like I've made one for um, an exhibition in Ireland, an exhibition in Japan, and of course the one uh, in, uh, for exhibition in the United States. Um, and the one in Ireland uh, featured a Bitcoin miner. Well, all of the projects feature um, coins that are look identical, absolutely identical to, to everyday coins that we carry in our pocket in the US and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But the difference is that they're minted out of the rare earth element gallium, mm-hmm. which looks just like mercury when it's in liquid form and melts at human body temperature. And unlike mercury, it's safe, uh, safer, much safer than mercury. Um, and so with that project, um, the one in Ireland, um, I used a Bitcoin miner uh, to melt the coins at the at the apex of the the pyramid, um, mm-hmm. and I used the Bitcoin miner just to blow a bunch of hot air, so that you know one of the oh, consequences yeah. of mining uh, uh, bitcoins is uh, just the tremendous amount of thermal uh, uh, waste, and so mm-hmm. I used that waste to melt up a block of uh, coinage that trickled down or didn't trickle down actually uh, the uh, pyramid sort of looking at the mythologies of trickle down economics. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Another project where you're, 
you're like taking uh, these sort of things that maybe a lot of people, I'm not not a lot of people I think know about Bitcoin miners, and now it's there in the exhibition, illuminating all these different pieces of a complex financial system. I think it's so crazy to the materials you choose, like ga- gallium. How did you? Where did you? Where did you get access to gallium? That was an <laughs> even hard thing to get access to. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the things about gallium is that uh, well, it's super expensive. Uh, it or expensive for me. Uh, it um, it oxidizes aluminum. Oh, okay. So it mm-hmm. um, it's safe, uh, pretty safe for humans, but if it does this amazing thing. It actually infiltrates the metal lattice, like at a molecular level, mm-hmm. and it, it can turn a piece of aluminum into like brittle, uh, almost like a, you know, like one of these roses dipped in liquid nitrogen. It just oh wow it can totally destroy aluminum, and so the entire scaffolding and infrastructure of the giant pool of money is suspended by aluminum. Uh, mm-hmm. So, if taken to its lo- the longest time span, the entire platform and conveyor belts and everything would collapse into a pile. Wow. And in fact, in the Japanese version, um, th- there's a Japanese coin, uh, a, a yen coin, uh, one yen coin, uh, that are made of aluminum, and you can float them on water. And so that that installation involved. Um, floating yin that were decomposing due to gallium uh, over the duration of the show. Nice. Wow, but I find material, cool. yeah, I, uh, sorry. No worries. I, f- I find material, I start with kind of an idea, you know, like mm-hmm. how can I make money melt in front of people's, right in front of people without, like, without, um, you know, an external, large external heat source that becomes obvious to them. Uh, you know, how can I take something familiar and make it super strange so that they can kind of arrive at a new understanding about this kind of complex world we're pickled in? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, wow. That's the means. Uh, you, you reach the means through the through where you're trying to get to. Or the means, I don't know. But yeah, I see what you mean. Okay, cool. Um, so where, like, now you're not a currency expert and you're not a, economics although you're very well researched so i'm wondering where do you see this like where do you see our currency situation going to i mean i don't think a lot of people have like explicit trust in what we'd call fiat currencies and yeah i mean i'm all for a i'm like i think a decentralized value system is just going to need to happen so I wonder, what is that going to be like a Bitcoin, like a digital currency situation or something like that? I don't know. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people asking those questions, right? Um, you know, I what I try to do with my practice is like problematize it. You know, I, I'm not, mm-hmm. I, I'm not equipped or super interested in in the solutions. Uh, mm-hmm. I see, um, for sure. And, but um, but I think there are some exciting ideas around. So. You know, we've had, well, we, we, we lived through the 2008 economic collapse that, you know, had created a lot of uncertainty about nations and central uh, economic theory. Mm-hmm. And I see the, the interest in uh, uh, cryptocurrencies as a response to the lack of trust in you know, democratic institutions, central banks, things like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think the lack of trust in those systems is valid. However, I would say for me personally, I have even less trust in the techno priesthood of our society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I think rethinking money is exciting. So right now money, unlike apples, for instance, uh, you can hoard in large supply uh, with very little negative. Actually, you get rewarded if you do that, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you, you know, had two billion apples in a warehouse, they would start to putrefy, and like, you know, um, everybody would know about it pretty quickly, right? Right. But yeah. Money, but the current form of money, uh, even Bitcoin, uh, you know, 
benefit, you know, uh, can be hoarded and, and, and increases speculation. Mm-hmm. I, I think there, you know, there's some exciting ideas about money that's value would be tied with circulation, right? Something that's built for speed. Uh, right. That if it, you know, if it's not moving and circulating, then it loses value. Mm-hmm. I think that's exciting. Um, That'd be, yeah, that seems like that seems I never had never thought of it that way. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, incentivizing. I mean, basically, all money is going to do is this, is going to follow value. So if you incentivize certain behaviors, then you can obviously create change in that way. You know, the the de the demonetization is also an interesting thing. So the mm-hmm. several nations, uh, most recently um, India. Uh, announced and you can do this of course through fiat currency right they announced uh that that, that the 1000 ruby note uh would just become basically worthless sheets of paper uh president uh, prime minister modi decided this so they had a uh, the the citizens of india had a narrow window of time in which to queue up at banks and exchange their 1000 notes uh for you know uh, replacement notes or whatever. Mm-hmm. The reason that they did this, or they, the reason they said they did this, was to combat um, tax evasion, to to move more people from the kind of informal market into, like you know, basically digital banking and this sort of thing. But it it was a huge controversy. So I did a project called Tinder, where I take de- a currency that's been historically demonetized and I erase the currency. So they end up looking like little erased de Kooning drawings. Mm-hmm. With each currency, I have to figure out a way to break down the inks and use all these different tools to erase them. And once they're erased, what really starts to stand out are the copyright, uh, the copy prevention uh, features like the watermarks, the metallic threads woven into the papers and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so that's a project that's responding to to the demonetization and then i have another project called home rule that um uses a brand new uh british five pound note Mm -hmm. that was uh that was uh, minted right after brexit was announced and it was minted out of this polymer material that's become kind of trendy to print money you know uh, i think the canadians and australians use this kind of polymer material Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it holds up, supposed to hold up better over time, nice. um, but I've found that you can use uh, you can use the polymer five pound note as a record needle, and so I play yeah, yeah. A single That's track awesome. from the Clash. Do we stay or do we go? Using the five pounder and the little vibrating queen, uh, all the sound coming out of the out of the, the note. Super beautiful. Yeah, that that project was super fun to watch. I saw. Um, so I think it's um, it's interesting to see. It's interesting to talk about polymers and dollars, at least for me, because we're like constantly as like conscious minds in this world, like in investigating and learning about these really abstract and complex ideas, and then we're presented at, with this material that we then interface with. And so I was wondering, is there a place you could go in this conversation around? sort of like how consciousness works with material 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 the material world do you see a division between consciousness and materiality any interesting places in that regard i could be more specific too um you know uh like a lot of artists i think i i'm interested in neuroscience right and how Mm -hmm. uh kind of imaging and studying of the kind of brain body uh, situation has, has gave, given some insight into into this idea, right? This, you know, um, Antonio uh, was it Antonio Damasio uh, talks about, um, you know, this outmoded idea that the that the mind is like the chariot driver and the body is like the chariot, you know, and the horses are mm-hmm. maybe our libidinal impulses or something, and so you know, all these things work to kind of. Uh, control, you know, uh, uh, I, I don't uh, buy that, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think our conscious mind is just a sort of tip of an iceberg. And, you know, uh, just 
a little bit that we're familiar or, or think we're familiar with is just part of a larger uh, set of forces that include, you know, I think some collective experiences, some, you know, foundational kind of <laughs> childhood traumas and all these things. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, yeah, you know, the, yeah. Well, I, the, like on what you're saying now, the more I think about it, it is like, it's like, there's that phrase turtles all the way down. Mm-hmm. Like, and, 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 but that it, I'm always, I'm always wondering, like, I hear a lot of people who speculate around like it being like this sort of idea being like networks all the way down or like simulations all the way down. And I, it's because I travel a lot on these online boards and a lot of places where people are posting their ideas and things. And I'm always um, wondering too, like, since we're all like in our homes coding all the time, I mean, a lot of these places that are talking about simulation ideas come from like tech-centered situations. I'm like, are are they just ab- absorbed? Are we like just following what we're doing in our in our jobs and our daily lives, like as a sort of like a new spiritual quest almost? Of like, I'm not making sense, or maybe I am, but I'm trying to figure. Like, are we inspired by seeing all these networks all the time, so seeing how powerful they are, and then we're like, oh wow, maybe we are, our mind is a network. We're a simulation too. I, I always wonder about that too. Yeah, it's, con- yeah. it's confusing in general. Well, I think I, I like to tell you know artists that I work with and stuff that that I see there's something subversive with making work with technology, code, and these systems because mm-hmm. these are the these are systems of control, like they're mm-hmm. giant, you know, um, interconnected global system of control, like finance, uh, you know, trade, social media, uh, social media all of those. Yeah. And so I think, you know, artists using them, uh, hopefully they're, I mean, these are just too precious and too important to let just one industry use. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think I think that's where like you, artists have a responsibility in my book to to take those tools and use them for something other than utility, other than uh, you know uh, control in the in the in the kind of dark sense of of that. Right. Um, it feels you know <laughs> it feels maybe uh, you know like we've moved from maybe a kind of 1984 scenario into like a brave new world scenario where, you know, we're yeah. being controlled, like, um, you know, putting a salt lick in the center of a field is a way to control cattle, just like putting up a barbed wire fence is a way to control cattle. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But I think humans are fantastically much more, you know, thankfully more complicated and, uh, than, uh, than that. Analogy. But, uh, Allegedly. Yeah, um, <laughs> But I think, uh, yeah, I mean, but, um, yeah, I, I don't, you know. Um, no, that's cool. Yeah. I think um, the the distinction between 1984 and Brave New World hits me hard because uh, I see those two. I mean, I see 1984 at least as, like, this narrative where the dude is really trying to, like, the main character is, like pretty unsettled by what he's discovering and, and being in, but the brave new world main, main most, most of the characters in the brave new world are like totally down for the, for the Fordism uh, takeover. They're like, oh, they just give me the Soma pill and get me out of this. Like, I feel like that is our culture. I mean, speaking with people I speak with, it's like they, they're totally willing to, to duck out when things are, I mean, because things are just so abstract. It's like it's hard for one single human mind to like know about everything that's going on. So mm-hmm. I oscillate between these two feelings of like everybody should be like an individual, not in, like in in the sense where you have access to information. You should make like we don't need a paternalistic central government to control everything. We can have regional situations where everybody can choose where they want to live and what they want to do. But then you have to get people to like understand everything and not just hit the soma button when things get hard and like i don't know who's default people when that when they do do that because things do get hard so i don't know it's like an interesting question for me i think one nice thing about being in buffalo right in like one of the things i try to pull on when i'm kind of going down that rabbit hole like i think of like the love canal right this um side of massive industrial pollution 
uh, just mm-hmm. north of where I live. Um, and and the folks who you know brought attention and kind of blew the whistle on that were were not elected leaders. They were citizens. They were you know um, members of the PTA. They were men and women who had families in that area, mostly women and uh, people of color. And they pushed to create these uh, governmental programs that helped to remediate sites, help clean things up and helped create standards. So I, I, I believe that those things are important. My grandfather on my father's side, uh, who's one of my heroes, uh, Harrison Kenyon, uh, he, he was, uh, he worked in the EPA uh, when it was first created. And, um, you know, I grew up hearing stories about, you know, everything from, you know, the dye that's put on pistachios to water quality control and things like that. And that these were, you know, great, ex- like sort of existential battles with, you know, so I think individual uh, individuals are super important, of course, but I think collective action is super important. And, um, and building those coalitions where, you know, that that can temporarily stop their infighting and focus on the, the real villains, I think is is something that we, you know, we're struggling with today politically. Yeah, yeah, that hits a nail on the head. Yeah, basically trying to get people to put aside smaller things or what seem what can, in, in scale to what they add to the true things we're facing. It's like we can put down certain debates and come together to figure out yeah i know what you're saying there yeah one time i had this might be a story of interest to you um mm-hmm. yeah i was uh so i made this sculpture called super major which yeah. like a rack of vintage oil cans and the center can has a hole in it instead of oil leaking out it's flowing drop by drop uh into the can through a kind of um special effect i created with uh uh, pumps and uh, in optics and stuff, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you know, I think when I made that piece, I was a little bit worried. Oh, am I just preaching to the choir? You know, just telling, you know, making work that reaffirms the things that my community already, you know, says to itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it got into the, it was uh, shown. Uh, it's been shown all over the place. Uh, one of the first places was. Um, MOCAD, a Museum of Contemporary Art in Detroit. Uh, and then years later, it ended up uh, in the Kuala Lumpur Towers in Malaysia. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, those two groovy towers that were in a James Bond film a while back. Had the little bridge between it, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And those towers were built uh, by the um, proceeds from the Malaysian um, uh, oil and gas, uh, the National Oil and Gas Trust, uh, PetroSands. Mm-hmm. Petronas, Petrosans. I always get that one and the British one, or uh, the uh, Brazilian one mixed up. But anyway, mm-hmm. so the gallery is a few floors beneath the corporate headquarters. And uh, unbeknownst to me, um, at night, the uh, um, minions from the gallery, uh, from the uh, oil company, went down to the gallery and cut all of the labels off of my cans. Now, these labels wow. were originally picked because they represented the um, international cartel of oil companies that fi- you know fix the price and supply. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They replaced all of the labels with their corporate labels and essentially nationalized the artwork. And yeah. I, I couldn't go to the opening, so I you know logged onto some social media nonsense uh, the next day and saw all of these you know CEOs, all these suits standing around what looked to be my sculpture, but had been completely uh, rebranded. Right. And what had happened, uh, well, the petrodollar collapsed uh, around the same time. And Mm -hmm. the um, Malaysian government was exposed in a massive scandal of corruption because when they didn't have as much petrodollar to use to silence opposition, people started to speak out against them for their various policies of control. Mm -hmm. And um, so the whistle got blown on the on the um, governmental scandal that went all the way up to the tops of government the same month that my show, uh, the scandal related to my work. And I ended up on a conference call with one of the CEOs of the Malaysian state oil and gas company and a representative from the gallery. 
and they were asking me to print a retraction to the statement I had made to the press, which was, you know, um, you guys want to be part of the work? You're going to be welcome. You're now part of the work, you know? Yeah. And uh, they used all kinds of interesting tactics to sort of intimidate me to printing a, a, a retraction. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the things they said is uh, they asked me if I believe in children's science education. I said, of course I do. And they said, well, you know, if you don't print a retraction, then we run the risk of losing, you know, this oil company as a donor for a child science education program or something like that. Right. So that's an example of like, I think how art, you know, can speak it. it, it if you're lucky, you know, it ends up speaking uh, truth to some of those people who are in power in ways yeah. you can't even possibly, I could never have predicted that. Yeah, I always talk to, when I talk to artists and friends of mine, I'm always talking about the ripples that you create just with an action. I mean, any action, that's what art is to me, essentially. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a staged action that you're committing in the world. But yeah, the ripple effects are always, can be super surprising. And just the whole, uh, I mean, the whole synchronicity of, of, of them taking over your, uh, your branding on this piece, which that piece, by the way, is like, that's the first time I saw magic in real life. <laughs> watching that oil or that water i mean whatever the material go back into that can it really in person just looks like magic and you can't figure it out until you take a lot of time to try to figure it out but it's so that's beautiful on, on its own but then um thank you the uh the piece uh the, yeah the the, the 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 sort of debacle that that company finds themselves in and just the i mean the tactics that corporations employ against individuals of like trying to guilt you into taking away ch funding for a children's program you have nothing to do with it's and it's like actually maybe you should look at your donors mm -hmm. and why they're you know washing their hands of poisoning the earth by teaching kids an education program it makes me a friend of mine um a friend of mine is doing a podcast illustrations for a podcast uh, that focus on the Arab world and um, they couldn't find a sponsor for their podcast and eventually they found one and it happens to be the company that the Obamas created for their media arm and so there's like they once the press went out for this podcast and they um, got a lot of flack from the Arab world around mm -hmm. having the Obamas be a co-signer on this project because under Obama's regime we see a huge uptick in drone strikes you know and all the people who are killed and it just is funny to me when like people in power leave power you know for whatever reason and then just get into media that's <laughs> like that's like where everyone seems to be going it's like me the like we're back to this jello biafra quote of don't hate the media be the media politicians want to be the media it's like that is the main like entry point into control or just like conversation in our world you know it's uh, everybody's got a spin sort of thing. Well, cool. I was wondering, is there, are there things coming up for you? Uh, um, are there directions that you're going? Are there, what's, what's next in the swamp horizons? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, while being in quarantine, uh, I've been thinking a lot, like I, I know a lot of people have about um, housing and how, how precarious we all are, right? Uh, you know, um, you know, I'm I'm lucky enough and privileged enough to be a tenured professor, you know, at a major research school. Mm -hmm. But you know, um, we're all just a couple of paychecks away from being on the street, and uh, whether we whether we think about that or not, right? And mm -hmm. uh, and so, I've been studying to be a locksmith. So I've been learning. Uh, to be a locksmith, um, which is really difficult because it everything is all the springs and parts of locks are quite intricate and small. It's sort of like being a watch repairman. And um, but I'm working on this project I call Lock Set, where I'm meeting with uh, residents. Uh, they don't have to be homeowners; they could be renters. They just people. I'm starting where I live and expanding out. Mm -hmm. And I'm carving, uh, I'm cutting keys, but the the profile, uh, the shape of the key is a profile of the homeowner, uh, their face, and uh, 
their silhouette profile. And then I'm working with them to find a lock, um, usually like a secondary lock within their home. And then I'm setting that lock to match the negative space of the key. Mm -hmm. And so what I, with this project, I want to embed the identity of the resident into the infrastructure of the home in such a way that it could um, outlast the resident uh, occupation of the home. So if they're home, if they get displaced, if they have to move because they lose their job, the bank takes their home, the landlord flips the house uh, because of speculation, that they're like the, like the notches in a door frame that measure the height of children, th these patterns inside of the lock will persist long after they've left. And like the notepad, it kind of opens up this idea that there's like a kind of circulating protest Imagine like the next occupant or resident of the home carrying the profile silhouette of the previous inhabitant in their hand or in their pocket or the, the bank lockbox full of keys, you know, containing the profiles of individual people. Right. Yeah. You're increasing the amount of time, amount of interactions people will have where they're like, oh, wait, we are in a giant system of control and... <laughs> and moving resources from one place to another. Yeah. That's tight. That's cool that you're starting to be a locksmith too. That's, uh, I'm all for increasing skills all the time. Something that seems to do a lot of, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Turns out the, the, the term silhouette uh, was the last name of this Frenchman uh, who uh, was hired uh, uh, during a time of austerity uh, to restructure the French uh, tax system. And um, his name became synonymous with cheapness because the silhouette, uh, silhouettes often cut paper were a kind of inexpensive um, way to create a portraiture for, uh, for people. And so uh, the silhouette, uh, you know, has, uh, has its origins in time of austerity connected to like financial uh, central planning. Oh, uh, wow. So that's kind of, I'm pretty excited about that project. Um, it gives me a chance to, to, to talk with people about their experiences uh, related to housing and precarity. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then there's another project with housing where I have been creating these tiny little models, these little sculptures of houses. I have one question kind of coming out of the silhouette <laughs> thing, which is, when you're doing your research for these projects, so a beautiful thing you do is start connecting all these dots together. Not unlike conspiracy theorists may do, where they're, and, and I'm wondering, um, what I'm really wondering is do, when you start to see things like, oh, silhouette has this connection to this, like, do you start thinking of like, oh, these are, once you start getting into a process, all these wonderful synchronicities and things start popping up. Do you think that's just a, is that something that pops up a lot in your work? And if it does, is that something that you attribute to just how our brains seek patterns? Or do you think there's fun magic occurring? Well, um, I'm, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm not a big fan of magic. Um, oh, word. Yeah, you don't believe in magic. I'm, I'm I don't a fan either. of illusion. I, 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 yeah. uh, um, but I think there's a sharp distinction between um, finding patterns well, I think, okay, so like patterns are, we, we are pattern finding machines, right? Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. um, I like to tell my students, they don't call it dopa nice, they call it dopamine, right? Yeah. Like our brains are just pattern finding machines, right? And, mm -hmm. uh, um, but there is a question, right, of like, am I finding a pattern or am I projecting it onto the world, right? Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. is the world just a set of clouds roaming past my eyes while I'm staring at it and I see trains, I see the face of my mother, you know, I see all these things in the clouds or are they really there, you know? And I think, you know, finding those patterns can be an act of like free association to try to activate some of those intuitions that we have. Mm -hmm. I think artists are intuitively much smarter than they are consciously. And so that's the key, I think, to making work that's smarter than you, <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. 
pulling on that intuition. But the problem with that intuition, if left unchecked or unexamined, it can lead to kind of the situation we're having on a, on a mass scale in the U.S. where where correlation is is read as causation, and I think like history and facts and and uh, open discussion, those things all help to verify those things. Like so, I say to you, you know, Nikki, do you see? Does that tr- does that look like a train? Does that cloud look like a train to you? You know, or mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think th- so. Those things are important um, because I see like magic, organized religion, things like that as like deeply problematic and things I've yeah. shaking my fist at for years. Uh, I feel you. Yeah, that's what I was. At. That's what I was actually getting at. The sort of like w- whether or not we're projecting these what our intuition is telling us or, or, or verifying something that we see with facts. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, I got through, uh, many of the things I wanted to ask you about. So, uh, I think we're coming to the end of the okay. end in a way. Yeah. Um, but thanks so much for, for coming on. We can, uh, hit the end button. Okay. Cool. Do the same on my side.